Good morning, family and friends of Pillar Church. Uh, before we get into the sermon this morning, I thought it would be good for us to consider the realities of our country. I remember it wasn't too long ago that we put out a short video asking you to pray for the family of Ahmaud Arbery. I remember not too long ago uh, in the prayer circle before our church service praying for Tatiana Jefferson. I remember fielding phone calls not too long ago about the shooting of Breonna Taylor. I remember not too long ago putting out a video speaking about George Floyd. And as you have clearly seen, this has been a vicious cycle and a vicious season for me, my black and brown brothers and sisters, and all those who have hearts of empathy and who are suffering alongside of us. You know, this uh, shooting of Mr. Blake hit me a little different than some of the other ones. And, and so didn't George Floyd, but this one hit me in a unique way because I remember in 2015, you know, sitting at my computer as an associate pastor of a church in New York, and I remember seeing the shooting of Walter Blake, who was himself an unarmed black man running away from a, a police officer who let off seven rounds, five of which landed, I believe, killing Mr. Um, Mr. Scott. And then to see the pictures of them handcuffing his deceased body as if he had any ability to do violence to them. He took five shots to his back, just like Jacob Blake took seven to his back. And just like then, I think now, and I wonder, and I've, I've been praying to God, like, man, when are we going to stop being expendable? You know, it's all kumbaya until there's the feeling of threat or the, the, the feeling of disruption. And then our lives become expendable. And I stick by the reality that we have a severe worldview issue. But I want to take time to pray for Mr. Blake, that he survives. Right now, I believe he's in critical condition as, as we record this video. And maybe not critical, but serious condition. Um, we do know that he is paralyzed from the waist down. That man will never be able to run and race his sons again. And I want that to sink in. He'll never be able to carry his sons. He'll never be able to climb a tree with his sons, play baseball without the aid of a wheelchair, perhaps. Shot in the back. Father, how long is what my heart says? How long? And I know, Lord, you have done so much good. In your works, your mighty hand has been displayed for all the world to see, Lord. I deny none of it. However, I also do not deny the pain of my heart and the pain of a nation, of a, of a people in this nation, Lord. And you call us not to deny those things but to cry out to you in the midst of those things. 
And so, Lord, I am obeying your word and I'm crying out to you for you are the only source of help in the time of need. Lord God, I pray that you go beyond comforting that family. I pray that you go beyond ringing justice for that family, but that you do this. You do a similar thing that you did for Job, that you restore so much of what was lost and that the blessings are double, not because the family is holy, not because the family is even Christian. I don't know if that family, I don't know if they know you, Father. And I pray that they do or that they come to know you through this. I simply pray that that man experience your hand of blessing, one that he may come to know you. But that he may see that the Lord is good. I pray that you would give my people wisdom and courage in the midst of action. That we would use wisdom, our heart and our mind in proper proportion for maximum blessing. Not too much heart, not too much mind, but both in proper proportion. And that we would have courage, Lord. Which is the eradication of cowardice. It's the not only the engaging in a hard thing, but the enduring in a hostile and hard thing. Would you grant us these wisdom and courage as we take action in whatever ways you've called us to do so? Lord, continue to raise up servant leaders to do this. And may your church lead the way. May your shepherds lead the way. Father, give me wisdom to lead this church through these times. We are a young people, a young church, one years old. We are in the midst of turmoil, which honestly, Lord, the turmoil never ended for any of these churches. But we are in the midst of turmoil and global pandemics. <laughs> give the shepherds of this church the wisdom and the courage to lead not only this church, but to help lead this community in whatever ways you give us to do so. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, read Psalm 46 to you. And as I read Psalm 46, my desire is that you will close your eyes and let the word of God sink into your soul. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the sea, though its waters roar and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil. Verse 8. Come see the works of the Lord, who brings devastation on the earth, who makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop your fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. 
And may the Lord bless you. And may the word of God do work in your soul. And we thank you and praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, Pillar Church. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. And as always, it's an honor and joy to come before you this Sunday morning to proclaim the word of God unto you. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Jude called Contending for the Faith. However, we're going to do part two of last week's sermon, which was the real one. The real one, part one, we started looking at uh, who is Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? What does the Bible say as, to, as it pertains to the person of Jesus? And this morning, we want to do a part two to that and just know that this topic of who the real Jesus is, is so big. It's so lofty that we could literally spend several, probably years, um, exegeting the text as to who the person of Jesus is. There are works and books this thick just on the person of Jesus alone. And so I want you to know that what I'm giving you is but a snippet of what the text tells us about our Lord and our Savior. And so even though we're in the book of Jude, technically, last Sunday and this Sunday, we're going to stay in the same series, but we're not looking at Jude proper. We're not going to be looking at the book of Jude or any of the verses in Jude this week. We will return to that next Sunday. As for this Sunday, we're going to look at the real one, the real Jesus, part two. I just want to tell you all a story about uh, when the Lord began to do work in my life. It was 2005. And uh, I had a good friend who died in a car accident on Revere Beach Parkway in, in, in uh, the greater Boston area. And it was at his funeral that the Lord began to poke and prod my heart. Now, as I look back, I see that the Lord was involved with my life from early stages until that point. But I didn't have the hindsight to know. I didn't have the theological framework to see it either. But I remember at, at my friend's wake, as I stared at his body, it was the first time I had ever had, truly had and truly considered eternal thoughts. I can remember it almost like it was yesterday as I see his body laying there and I'm sitting uh, near the head of his body, kind of pushed back about a row or two back. And I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm wondering, where is he? I'm wondering, you know, does he know he's dead? I'm wondering, is he conscious somewhere else? Can he hear that priest dude over there talking? You know, I start thinking, you know, just about my life and the finite reality of how short our life is. And, and I remember I even walked up to the casket when it was time to do the walking in the view. I was one of the pallbearers. And so I got close to the body, close to the casket, and I even knocked on the casket. Now, I tell you this because that wasn't the first time I had seen a deceased person. I had seen many, many people um, in, that, in that exact spot, you know, laid up in a casket. But this one was different. This one was hitting a little different. This one, this one hit me uniquely where I started to consider the realities of eternity. I started to consider my life. I started to consider the lives of my homies. And, and I was questioning things. I don't know if you can relate to that. Have you ever been in a place where you start to have eternal thoughts? Now, I know for many of you, you start to have eternal thoughts at funerals or at wakes. 
it's normal because life forces you to slow down when you're at awake and it forces you amongst other things, not just slowing down, it forces you to come to grips with the reality of your own mortality. And so I ask you, can you relate to that experience? Have you ever had an experience that forced you to ask yourself some of those big, profound questions in life? Some of those questions like, where do we come from? Questions like, what is my purpose in this life? Questions like, what happens after we die? Questions like, why am I here? See, all of those questions are important for us to consider, but I think that we need to be asking a different question. Even though those questions are major questions, they're big time questions, I think we're missing the question that will influence the answers to those other major questions. If you listen to part one, then you know what I believe the most important question in all of human history is. It's found in the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? The answer to that question will alter the answer to all the other profound and important questions that we will come across in our life. All those deep philosophical questions will be influenced by the answer to that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, if we get Jesus right, then we have more to offer than a theory on where we came from. You know what I'm saying? If we get Jesus right, then we have more to offer. We possess more than a theory as to what happens after we die. You see, those questions start to take shape once we have an answer to Jesus's question, who do you say that I am? And so answering the question, who do we say Jesus is, will bring nuance to us. A right understanding of Jesus brings clarity to those deep, profound questions. And in the person of Jesus, we will find the very thing that our hearts and our minds have been searching for as a result or because we've asked those questions. Let me say it again. In the person of Jesus, we find answers to the thing that's causing us to ask those profound questions. That's a better way to say it. There you go. In the person of Jesus, we have what our souls have been panting for, namely that we, our, our souls can be quenched by the brook of his living water. But only if we get the right Jesus, only if we have the real one, will we have substantive answers for those deep questions. You see, a false Jesus does not provide answers for those questions. A false Jesus doesn't satisfy the groping of a man's soul a false Jesus doesn't provide all that is necessary for life and godliness in this world. A false savior can never satisfy and a false savior can never save. Now, I don't know about you, but every night about 8, 8.30, a war rages within the members of my body. My mouth starts to salivate. My eyes embark on a search and destroy mission. About 8, 8.30 every night, your boy gets a craving for dark chocolate. Now, I don't know if you can relate to what it's like to have a late night craving, but I'm a notorious late night snacker. And I tend to get chocolate cravings. You see, I'll leave my house at midnight and drive long distances 
just to get me some chocolate. You can ask my wife. Sometimes I just got to have it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sometimes I just got to have it. You see, before I realized what I was searching for, I would eat random junk out of my pantry, hoping to satisfy the craving in my taste buds. I would try salty foods. I would try crunchy foods. I would try savory fruit foods. But none of them was hitting just right. None of them did the trick. But on one faithful night, one fateful night, I was rummaging my pantry. And I opened the door and I saw a bag from a baby shower that we had went to a day or two prior. And I opened the bag and I saw within the bag one lowly piece of lint dark chocolate, the one in the blue wrapping, the ball. I partook of that lint dark chocolate, y'all, and my soul was blessed. Thine eyes laid hold of the beauty and my taste buds experienced the savory sweet flavor of lint dark chocolate. They're not paying me. This isn't a paid advertisement. I'm just saying. I love me some lint dark chocolate. I tasted and I saw what my craving was what my craving needed. It satisfied the craving within my body. You see, out of desperation, I've tried other chocolates. I've tried Hershey's. I've tried, you know, whatever other brands you want to name. And yes, they're good. They're all right. But none of them hit quite like Lint Dark Chocolate hits. None of them does quite what Lint Dark Chocolate does for me at 8, 830 at night, almost every night. Now, I don't partake of it every night, but I'm just saying for the sake of an example, you feel me. See, 2,000 years ago, there was a lowly baby in a manger, born of the spirit of God, yet born of a woman. And he would be called the son of the most high. You see, he was a baby who was to reign over the kingdom that had no end. We find that in Luke 1.32. Unbeknownst to us, yet fully known to God, we needed that baby. You see, like me at 8.30 p.m., humanity is groping in darkness, hoping to find what only God has provided in the person of Jesus. Only the real Jesus can satisfy the longings of our soul. Only the real Jesus can save us from sin, death, and hell. Only the real Jesus does the trick. A false Jesus just won't do. And so it's important that we have and know the real one. Who's the real Jesus? When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? He was talking to his disciples and what he was explaining to them was the reality that they had to get him right. And only in getting Jesus right can we find rest for our souls and salvation from our sins. Are you groping in darkness? Aren't you sick of those false saviors that promise you false hope that you never tangibly feel? Aren't you sick of, of engaging in activities that are supposed to alleviate the longings of your soul and they lie to you telling you that you're all right before any and all higher power when the reality is that you are not all right in the sight of Almighty God. And we need a savior, the real savior, to be a living sacrifice on our behalf. Did we not learn that last week? Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Who gets to define who Jesus is? Let me give you a little clue. It ain't you. <laughs> you don't get to define who Jesus is. Why does it, why does it even matter who he is or who he was? And, and, and in what Christ do you believe? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible or do you believe in the Jesus of your own imagination? Last Sunday, we saw that the real Jesus is the epitome of a prophet. A prophet is one who brings God and his word to the people. That's what a prophet does. His words, a prophet's words, are faithful and true. And there is no prophet, not Moses nor Elijah, that we are to heed before we heed the prophet Jesus Christ. Jesus, his words come first. And we are to reject all false prophets from Muhammad to Elijah Muhammad. No prophet stands in the face of Jesus because in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, God told us what we ought to do. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when the cloud went away, God took away any question as to who that beloved son was because the only one standing there was Jesus. But we also saw uh, that, that Jesus was our high priest in eternal sacrifice. You see, a prophet takes God's word and brings it to the people, but a priest takes the people in their sins and brings them to God. That's what a priest does Jesus offered up his own blood as as the, as the high priest he entered into the holy place and he offered up blood but it wasn't the blood of bulls goats or sheep or lambs no he offered up his own blood as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all who believe that's what Jesus does because he is the great high priest and he is our eternal sacrifice we also learn that by grace through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus is enough to save us from the wrath of God God. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If we add anything to the cross of Christ, we have spoiled it because we have no longer put our trust in the cross in the, in the person of Jesus. We have placed our trust in our ability to save ourselves or in somebody else's ability to redeem. But there's only redemption in the person of Jesus. There's only one spotless lamb whose blood was pure, perfect, and eternal enough to, to satisfy the wrath of God. There is only one individual. There is only one being who was able to propitiate God's wrath, and that was Jesus Christ, the real one, the one whose works we don't need to add to. Jesus' sacrifice atones forever, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says that he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. What did he obtain? He obtained eternal redemption. That means your works cannot redeem. Jesus obtains eternal redemption. You can't add to his work. Jesus alone redeems. Y'all hear me on this. Jesus alone. Your works are a response to his love and grace. Your works are not a means by which you attain his love and grace. Hear me, y'all. Jesus alone. He is our high priest and our eternal sacrifice. And if you strip that away from him, we have no redemption. This Sunday, we'll be looking at Jesus, the servant king. 
And we'll also look at Jesus, who is God in the flesh. See, the New Testament is the second portion of your Bible. And in the New Testament, there are four books called Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They are they're called the Gospels. Right. And each of the Gospels that the, the Gospels are simply accounts of Jesus's ministry, life, death and resurrection. That's what they are. They're not biographies. Right. Biographies tell us tell alls from birth to, to, to death. But no, not here. These are just simply accounts of Jesus's life by Jesus, his apostles and those who followed and investigated Jesus his, and his apostles. Now, each of these gospels portray Jesus slightly different than the other one. And there's a good reason for that. They have a different vantage point. These are different individuals and they're trying to communicate something different about the savior to their audience. Let me give you an example. If your mother was to write a biography of your life, but not just your mother, your best friend was also going to write a biography of your life. But not just your best friend, your daughter and your son, your children decide that they're going to write a biography about your life. They're all talking about the same person. They're talking about the real you. However, I guarantee that not only will there be different stories in these biographies, there'll be different uh, vantage points by which even people who are at the same event would record it. You see, your friend would say that you were standing there with one other person, but your mother would say, no, there were two people there. Is that a contradiction? No, there was one individual who was more prominent than the other. And that's the one who was being engaged that you were engaging with. And so that's the one that your friend wrote about. But your mother, having the eyes and care of a mom, stepped back and was able to see the whole scene and saw that there was not one person, but two. Y'all feel me? This is how the gospels work. This is how they are. They are harmonized. They're talking about one person one reality, yet because of whom they're speaking to and what they're trying to show their audience, they, they, they show him in a bit of a different light than the others. For example, the gospel of Mark portrays Jesus as a servant because he was. The key verse in the gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you open the, your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice that there's no genealogy in the Gospel of Mark, and that's intentional. It's because the genealogy of a servant truly doesn't matter. You'll notice that a genealogy of, of a king matters, which we'll see later. You see the genealogy of a man matters, which is in the Gospel of Luke. You see the genealogy of, of God, though he doesn't have a genealogy, he eternally existed. But that's exactly what we see in the book of John. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The genealogy of the word, who in verse 14 became flesh, is all eternity. Jesus, the word, existed for all eternity. But we'll get to a passage that talks about the deity of Christ in just a little bit. The Gospel of Mark is action oriented and it's action oriented because it's the actions of a servant that matter, not the uh, not what they say, but what they do. You'll notice the Gospel of Mark is not concerned with Hebrew prophecies or Greek philosophy, right? It's about what Jesus does. It's about what Jesus. It says Jesus did this and then he started teaching this and then he was doing this. There's very few explanations and parables and long drawn out um, 
uh, uh, long drawn out explanations of things in the gospel of Mark. It's just Jesus doing stuff. Now they're there. They're just not prominent. Now, Mark portrays Jesus as a servant, and the question is, what is it that this Jesus has done? How has this servant served? Well, Jesus gave his life faithfully serving the people, right? He gave his life faithfully serving the people. He would spend man hours, literally from sunup to sundown, healing those who are sick, casting out demons out of those who are demon-possessed. I mean, he would give the majority of his time during any given day to serving people, not to mention he would go home at night and then he'd be schooling his disciples all night. Like Jesus gave, he he gave, he gave, he gave. Now I want you to know that Jesus didn't just give, but that he also found a place of seclusion to spend all night with God that he may fill himself to be able to give again. Oh my goodness. If the, if God, the son and the son of God had to, had to, to get away to a secluded place to be with God the Father, how much more do we? Okay, don't think that you can just give, give, give and not spend time in the presence of God, allowing him to recharge the battery and recalibrate the, uh, recalibrate the compass. No, come before him, stand before him. Jesus had a lifestyle of faithful giving, but the ultimate display of humble service is found in the service of love. For he was compelled by love to be maligned and arrested, beaten, spit upon, and crucified. Let me read to you just a little bit about the love of this servant and what he endured on behalf of those whom he served. Isaiah 52 and 53 give us a picture of the suffering servant. Verse 13, it says, See, My servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted, lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, I want you to know that John chapter three and John chapter 12 both say that Jesus will be lifted up, but not in an exalted way, lifted up upon the cross. So those words lifted up have meaning to his audience. Verse 14. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. Guys, this is talking about most likely speaking of the scourging of Jesus, the beating of Jesus, the crown of thorns upon his mangled head, the beard that was torn, skin hanging, dangling, veins and organs possibly exposed. He was beaten beyond recognition, y'all. This is his service to you. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. See, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like sheep silent before her shears. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Verse 12. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as his spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. Oh God, do you not see the beauty of the gospel? How we were at enmity with God. We were enemies with God. Yet Jesus came and died for those who were rebellious against the Father. He bore our sins in his body. What kind of, have you ever been the recipient of that kind of love? Have you ever been at the service of that kind of service? No, you've never received that level of love, not by anybody not named Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the only one who has dispensed this type of love. The innocent for the guilty, the holy for the unholy, the eternal for the finite. Jesus left his heavenly home to redeem the likes of us who have rebelled and spit upon his name. He's so gracious. He's so merciful. His, his duty as a servant is so rich. He served me in the greatest way possible. This is the real Jesus. This is what the real Jesus has done. Jesus was a servant, but not only this, he was also a king. You recall, as I talked about the gospel of Mark portraying Jesus as a servant, while the gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus as a king. One of the key passages in the book of Matthew is found in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, where it says then, or from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near, or how I've studied it, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
You see, Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And so when Jesus says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, their mind probably would go back to the Davidic covenant we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised that a son of David would sit on the throne for all of eternity. You see, Jesus, based on the genealogy found in the book of Matthew, is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the son of David who would sit on the throne for all of eternity because he will live for all of eternity, not only making intercession, but ruling and reigning as king. When we think of a king, we can't get it confused with the likes of a president. See, a president has, you know, Congress and a, and a president has to, to write laws and get them approved by this dude and that dude. But a king has more sovereignty than that. A king has a more powerful rule than that. Just this past week, me and my discipleship group were reading through the book of Esther. And we saw that King, uh, I can never say his name, King Ahasuerus, oh, I believe is King Xerxes as well, just a different name for him that King Xerxes had such authority, such power, that those who came into his presence without asking, he would have killed. And it wasn't like it was a big surprise thing. It wasn't like that wasn't within the powers of the king. No, the king could just do that. The kings would throw banquets weeks and months at a time. Kings had all kinds of riches at their disposal. Kings were able to do almost what they wanted to do. And in the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus is the Davidic king because the genealogy goes through King David to King Solomon. And it continues down to Rehoboam and, and, and Abijah, I believe, and then Asa. And it just keeps going through these different kings. And it goes all the way until the exile. And then we see that the kings are now vassals under the rule of another king. But Jesus comes to reestablish the kingdom. Kings have real power and kings have the ability to, to change the situation. Now, leave it to Jesus to be both a king and a sacrifice. I hope I'm making sense, y'all. I hope y'all remember, I can't see you, okay? I'm recording a video, okay? I don't like doing this, but we got good news coming up. Don't you worry about it. Some good news coming up. Leave it to Jesus to be both king and servant. Because when you hear king and servant, you think of two diametrically opposed positions. However, I think that those two things fit together like puzzle pieces. Because a king is to rule and govern, a.k.a. serve, to the pleasure and benefit and prosperity of the people to whom he rules over. Y'all see what Jesus does for us? Look at Isaiah 42, what it says about a servant. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. This is my servant, God says. I will strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. And what will he do? He will bring justice to the nations. This is what this servant's going to do. He's going to bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. Verse 3, he will not break a bruised reed. He will be gentle to those who are hurting merciful. And he will not put out a smoldering wick. What will he do? He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice 
on earth. You tell me what kind of servant can bring justice to not only a nation, but justice to earth. There's no servant that can do that. A servant doesn't have the power nor the influence to be able to bring justice to any nation, not to mention earth. Only a servant who is a ruler of nations can do that. And that's what we find in the person of Jesus. Look what it says about the person of Jesus 700 years before his birth as to what he will be in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. It says, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. Let's stop there. That word eternal father is Aviad, which means he's the father of eternity. This is speaking about Jesus, not God the Father. Verse 7. It says that the dominion, his dominion, will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. How does this work for us? It reminds us that the kingdom of Jesus is far vaster, far deeper, far wider than any kingdom of man. That should influence your prayers, ladies and gentlemen. Because when you pray, you are not just praying to a feeble lamb, nor to a servant who has no stature. You are praying to the King of kings and Lord of lords, whose dominion runs from the physical to the spiritual. You are praying against the one who sits upon the throne, and the earth is nothing but his footstool. He can accomplish all his good pleasure. He is powerful to save. He is powerful to, 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 to heal. He is mighty in all that he does. When you pray, remember who it is that you are praying to. There may not be power in you and your words, but there is power in the one that you are praying to, and he will bring and lift you up in those times of need when you are praying to the Lord Almighty. Man, I pray so weak so often. I pray like you don't have power, Lord. Forgive me for my prayers of, of not trusting and remembering that you are the king of kings with a dominion that is eternal. Remind me of these truths, Lord. See, the real Jesus is a servant king. The real Jesus is, is not just a servant king. The real Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, this is the most hotly debated reality of the person of Jesus. And yes, Jesus is God in the flesh. Now I've heard all the arguments. No man can be God. That's right. But can't God become man? Can God take on human flesh? Philippians chapter two. I think he can. Even when he says, restore to me the glory that I once had before the, the, uh, the world began in John chapter 17, verse five. Come on. This isn't a man becoming God such as certain theologies teach. No, this is God entering into humanity in order to redeem humanity. But before I get too far, I don't have time to walk through the myriad of passages that teach the deity of Christ, that teach that Jesus is God in the flesh. There's so many. But I want to let you know that a video is being produced that will talk about a, a, 
where I will go over about a dozen or so verses that teach on this topic. But for the sake of time in this message, I'm going to highlight just one of those verses. And it's perhaps a verse that you didn't know what to do with part of it. But I want to help you today. And I hope this is speaking to somebody. I'm going to end the sermon on this idea, on this verse, on this topic. I'm going to explain it. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. You hear these promises for y'all? He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Clearly, what we see here is the Apostle Paul exhausting the Greek language in order to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he uses certain words that have caused confusion as to who the person of Jesus is. You see, from this passage, there are those who espouse falsely that Jesus is the first created thing from God, and then Jesus created all the rest of creation. In fact, there was a poll that came out recently that said that most People think that Jesus was God's first creation. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is a creation at all. In fact, the Bible teaches that Jesus created all things that have been created. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. And here again, we see that same reality. Jesus is creating and then Paul talks, basically gives us every category in existence, right? Jesus is the creator of all things. But the confusion comes because of a particular word that we find in this passage. In verse 15, it says that he is the firstborn over all creation. We see that same word used in verse 18. It says he is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning in what? The firstborn from the dead. Now, those who reject that Jesus is God will say that this word firstborn means first created. Now, before we even look at a language, at at, at the Greek language, it doesn't even hold water in its own context. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, first created over all creation. Okay, we'll go there. But once you get to verse 18, you're stuck. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead or the first created from the dead. Well, death doesn't create anything. Now, I know you're like, man, that's kind of weak. I don't like that. That weak, that's weak sauce. Cool. Let's keep going. Let's keep talking about this word first created. The Greek word for firstborn is prototokos or prototokos. Now, that's firstborn. There is actually already in existence a Greek word for first created. The very word that you're trying to, or that somebody is trying to insert into this passage is prototokesis. 
So prototekesis is the word that already exists that Paul didn't use. I wonder why Paul didn't use first created. It's because that's not what he meant. Now, even then, if you're like, man, I still don't know, even though there was a word that means first created and Paul intentionally didn't use that word, he chose to use firstborn anyway, I'm still maybe thinking that Jesus was a created being and that that word means that he's the first created being from God. Okay. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 39, God says that Ephraim is his what? Firstborn. Wait a minute. Ephraim is his firstborn, and if firstborn means first created, then Ephraim was the first created of God. Now, clearly, the context tells you that there's a different way that firstborn, or there are different ways that firstborn could be understood. It could be understood in terms of begotten, like the literal firstborn child of a family, or it can mean something else. You see, Ephraim was not the literal firstborn in anybody's family. Ephraim is the little brother of Manasseh, Genesis chapter 48. And what do we find in Genesis chapter 48? We find Jacob, I mean Joseph, bringing his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to his father Jacob to be blessed. And as he brings his two sons to Jacob to be blessed, Jacob, with the right hand of blessing, places his hand, his right hand, the hand of blessing, the hand of of People call it the hand of power, but the hand of blessing on the head of Ephraim and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. Now, what's the problem? The hand of blessing is supposed to go on the oldest son, who's Manasseh, who is what? Technically what? The firstborn. However, Jacob crosses his hands and says, no, Ephraim will be greater than Manasseh. And so the blessing goes to Ephraim. He said, Manasseh is going to be a beast too, but Ephraim is going to be preeminent. He's going to be superior too. And that is another means by which we understand the word firstborn. Preeminent and superior over. It means that they have power over something. Now, understanding that the word firstborn can mean first literal begotten or, or somebody who has preeminent power over or authority over, let's read Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through and see if that interpretation holds water. He is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent one or the superior one over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, because he's superior. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the superior one or preeminent one from the dead. What does that mean? He has power over death, not created by it so that he might come to have first place in everything. It even tells you right there, he's the top dog in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All the fullness of God dwelt in the person of Jesus because God took on human flesh. We find that same truth in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 where it says the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. 
or your version may say, especially at the ESV, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Deity means that which makes God, God, right? It's the unique characteristics or the incommunicable attributes that only God possesses. There are attributes of God that we possess, but there are incommunicable attributes, meaning there are attributes that God doesn't communicate to us through him creating us, that he himself has. And as we talk, and when, when, when we see that video that's being produced, you'll see that there are certain incommunicable attributes that separate us from God that only God would have. And as I said earlier, eternality is one of them. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through the blood shed on the cross. This servant king, this God man played the role of a mediator because he was the priest and the sacrifice, just as he said he would be prior because he is the epitome of a prophet. This is the real Jesus and the real Jesus puts in real work for your soul and mine. And we have to place our faith and our trust in this person because only in him do we have salvation. Hear me y'all, hear me, study the scriptures and see for yourself that only in the real Jesus do we find salvation for our sin and a substitute will not cut it. Just like a false chocolate could not satisfy my craving, a false Jesus cannot save your soul. But staying in Colossians, I want to read verse 21 through 23. And I pray that the Lord shows you and reminds you who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. That is the answer that Peter gave to Jesus when Peter asked, when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And that's my prayer, that your answer to the question of who is Jesus is that he is the epitome of a prophet. He is the high priest and the eternal sacrifice, that he is um, fully man and fully God. And that he is the king and the servant, the servant king. My prayer is that your answer is that Jesus is the Messiah. And if we had time, I would show you that each of those characteristics of Jesus that I had highlighted during these two sermons are characteristics that are shown to be in the person of the Messiah. And that your answer would be that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have come or become a servant of it. And my prayer is that you too will become a servant of the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and his gospel. Father, there is so much, so much that was left unsaid, but you are perfect and I trust your will. I trust what you do. Father, I pray 
that through this word you have uh, caused men and women to consider truly who you are. What did the scriptures say about you? Father, I pray that you sparked a hunger for the study of the person of Jesus in the hearts of many and that many would come to place their faith in the real one and that many would abandon their false saviors, their false prophets, their false priests, those false sacrifices that never appease the wrath of God, the false kings that they bow down to and the false servants who do nothing but, but, but leech onto them and suck their blood. Lord, I pray that we would come to reckon with the real one, with you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you and praise you. In the name of Christ, we thank you and pray. Amen. So I hope y'all remember that I had some good news for you. And the good news is that on September 5th at 7 p.m., Pillar Church will be gathering at the MLK Center for in-person worship. Now, it's going to be a little bit different than what we normally do on a Sunday, but we're going to gather on a Saturday evening. Uh, the sun shouldn't be as high, so even though the temperature may be a little higher, that sun factor won't be on us, so we won't be cooking like a burger on a grill, you feel me? Uh, so we're going to be at the MLK Center. Uh, it'll be a stripped down version of what we normally do, and here's what I need you to bring. Here's what I need you to do. One is I need you to social distance. Uh, groups of 10 is what was suggested to us by the city. Uh, groups of 10. And if you're going to mingle with other individuals, please be courteous. Wear your mask. Bring your mask and wear your mask if you're going to mingle with individuals. People want to be able to go, go, go worship the Lord together and go home not wondering whether or not they've contracted COVID. So please do that. Uh, second thing I want you to bring is a bottle of water. Bring a bottle of water for you and your family. It's probably going to be hot. I don't know, but it's probably going to be hot. Bring a bottle of water. Bring bug spray. That's a must. Bring your own lawn chair and umbrella if you desire. So bring something to sit on. Maybe bring a blanket. I don't know. Whatever you want to do, but bring that uh, so that you can be comfortable. And the last thing I want you to bring is bring a heart ready to worship the Lord Almighty. We're going to sing a few songs of praise. I will preach and continue our series in the book of Jude. Hope to see you there. September 5th, 7 p.m. See y'all there.